0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit RedemptionCalgaryNorth.com Good morning. Well, it is a great privilege being with you here today. Um, when I initially heard I would be speaking on Esther 3, I'll be honest, I was a little apprehensive about how much we pulled out of such a small part of the story of Esther. But as, as always the case with Scripture, I dug in and I realized that there was a depth and a there, richness there that I had not anticipated. I could talk today for an hour or an hour and a half, but for your sake... <laughs> this rookie preacher will try to keep it a bit shorter. But I'll start off with a blog about a guy named Pastor Fareed. Pastor Fareed ministers in war-torn and predominantly Muslim Syria. Death threats against him are so common he can't keep track of them all. Except for that one instance when he was able to count them. 30. He knew because they were spray-painted and numbered on the front of his home. Number one, this is how we're going to kill you. Number two, this is how we're going to kill your wife. Number three, this is how we're going to kill your children. Number four, on and on the list went, and the blog continued, the church in the Middle East is under more persecution ...than anywhere in the world. Not coincidentally, I think, the Christian church in the Middle East is growing rapidly. In the midst of this terrible darkness, there's a beautiful ray of hope. I can hardly imagine being in circumstances like that. Can you put yourself in Pastor Farid's shoes? You feel convicted and convinced that, in spite of the danger, you must share the gospel... There have been threats, you've been treated like garbage. But a list of 30 threats to you, and even worse, your family, spray-painted on your house. And in spite of all the threats, in spite of the real violence, in the spite of the peril faced by God's people, the church is rapidly growing. So, why do I share that story with you? This story begs a question. How is it possible for a mere man amongst a crowd of enemies to stand for Christ? And more than that, for the church to be growing rapidly in the midst of all the persecution and troubles. Closer to home, it seems as if day by day, our colleagues, neighbors, bosses, and governmental authorities are moving from forbearance Of Christian values to outright attack we may not have had 30 threats spray-painted on our houses but we are increasingly being threatened with consequences for what is called radical right-wing evangelical beliefs all in all it appears that our nation and our world hates God hates his people and hates God's purposes so here's the question How do we stand for Christ in a nation and a world that is so hostile? How do we stand in dangerous days? How do we stand in dangerous days? All right, with that context, let's return to Esther. God's people, the Jews, are scattered across the empire of Persia. The empire extends from Greece into India, from Saudi Arabia into Egypt. It is massive, Persia and its people are generally hostile to the Jews, but that hasn't stopped certain Jews we've already been looking at from rising into the offices of power. In today's passage, we zoom in to the character of Mordecai. So let's start with reading Esther 3 together. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha. In order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him Haman was filled with fury but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahazurus in the first month which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to their governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel and the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can turn to your word for guidance, encouragement, wisdom and so much more. Thank you that in you We have everything we need when the days are good and when the days are evil. I ask that you would speak through my broken words today. Remind us of your powerful sovereignty and your loving promises to your people. May you be glorified today. Amen. Thanks for the water. (laughs) All right. So last week, Ray finished off chapter 2 with a story of Mordecai, a Jew and an official of the government, saving the king from an assassination plot. He emphasized how it would have been assumed that in those days, Mordecai would have been richly rewarded for saving the king. So why is this? Ancient kingdoms and empires were thick with conspiracy, deadly fights for influence, and assassination attempts. The Bible actually has many records of these. Looking as far back as Joseph, we see that cupbearers were high-ranking and trusted members of the court. Nehemiah is another example of a cupbearer, many years after the time of Esther. In the story of Daniel, we see other officials conspiring to kill Daniel, the king's favorite official, to gain influence and position in the king's court. We also see the story of Ehud, killing King Eglon with a sword in the book of Judges. And what would happen if you approached a Persian king uninvited? It was assumed you were trying to assassinate him. The only chance you had of surviving was if the king was to push his scepter forward, a sign of his trust. To state the obvious, it was a really, really, really big deal for the king to have someone he could have absolute trust in in his court. Now, at risk of dating myself, I need to make something clear. Veggie tales. <laughs> yes, I said Veggie Tales, takes a bit of creative license with the story of Esther. This is true of the assassination plot as well. Two random and unknown French bakers did not bake King Ahasuerus a cake to drop a grand piano on his head. <laughs> that is not how it happened. It's a funny, but ultimately a shallow representation of the significance of that event. In the real story, the guards were likely highly trusted officials to be given that position. And yet, even among this most trusted of position, these highly trusted officials in the king's court, conspiracy was thick. So the fact that Mordecai demonstrated trustworthiness and dependability was, even outside of the fact of the cultural norm and convention, a legitimate reason for extravagant reward. And not only that, but saving the king would have put Mordecai in the crosshairs of his fellow officials. How did it turn out for Daniel in Darius's court when he became the most trusted and distinguished of the officials? They plotted to throw him into the lion's den. So for Mordecai, the accolades, the praise and the rewards were not expected merely because of the cultural convention and his own trustworthiness, but also because he demonstrated this thing, these things while risking his own position and potentially even his own life. The king badly needed people who would risk their own lives for his own. So why do I rehash this part of chapter 2, which was already well covered last week? Well. The start of chapter 3 should be all the more shocking to us when juxtaposed with the heroic actions of Mordecai in chapter 2. The passage starts, After these things, after he saved the king, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamatheda, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down, and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So, if you're Mordecai here, what are you thinking? If that happened to you at work, perhaps you'd head right over to your boss's office and explain how ridiculous the whole thing was. How could he promote that buffoon ahead of you? Or perhaps you'd threaten to work for another company instead of tolerating this nonsense. It's a good thing we don't work for King Ahasuerus if Mordecai did march himself over to the king, he would find himself without a pulse pretty quickly. Mordecai didn't do that. Instead of being spiteful or resentful, he continues to serve the king, even in his undeserved obscurity. How long this went on we don't exactly know, but between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we believe there's about four years where Mordecai continued to Serve the king faithfully. And as we will find out, Mordecai continued serving well beyond chapter 3. Through these years of undeserved insignificance, Mordecai demonstrated faithful obedience to God's command back in Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, the Israelites were commanded to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, the Israelites, into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. So year after year, Mordecai faithfully obeyed the command of God by seeking the welfare of the king of Persia. He continued to serve the king of Persia, as we see in subsequent verses and chapters, even in the most difficult of days, when his life and the life of the Jewish people was on the line. It doesn't seem fair, does it? Newsflash, life isn't fair. Just because you've poured every drop of blood, sweat, and tears into work doesn't mean you get that promotion. And just because you've followed the Lord sincerely and fervently doesn't mean that life will only be sunshine and rainbows. In fact, it might be the opposite. Your immoral colleagues might be promoted ahead of you you might be brought low with sickness or tragedy in spite of your love for the Lord. God does not promise an easy life for his children here on earth, but he does call us, like Mordecai, to be faithfully obedient. It reminds me of the parable of the talents. Jesus told the story of some servants who were entrusted with much while others were entrusted with little. In the end... Those who were faithful over little or large were praised. The master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, you may think that your little acts of obedience are so small, so obscure, So irrelevant to be even valued or measured. But I would point out the promises of Jesus. In Mark 9 41, Jesus said, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And in Matthew 6 6, Jesus said, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, Who sees in secret will reward you. The Lord sees your obedience. It may seem humanly insignificant, but that could not be further from the truth. Your faithful obedience is so significant that the Almighty God, the God who created the entire universe with a word, will reward you. That reward may not come here on earth. Obedience might be difficult and hard. It might continue year after year in obscurity, just like Mordecai. But when we see him, he will reward us for our faithful obedience. So, how do we stand in dangerous days? We stand with faithful obedience. All right, we've got through two verses, 13 more to go. Let's turn back to Esther and read verses 2 through 4. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, And he would not listen to them, they told Haman. All right, so there's a number of interesting things here to pull apart. Firstly, it's worth pointing out that it was the cultural norm in Persia to pay homage and bow down to those people who were in a higher position than you. Bowing to Haman would not have seemed abnormal or unique. It was expected. And even more interestingly... Many biblical texts show us Jewish people regularly bowed down before people of power influence. So bowing wouldn't have been, you know, bowing would have been culturally expected and biblically allowed. So the question is, why did Mordecai disobey a direct order of the king to bow to Haman? Mordecai would have known there would have been consequences. He would have witnessed Queen Vashti's removal at her disobedience. Maybe, you might think, it's because Mordecai feels slighted or overlooked after Haman's promotion. He was shaking his fist at the one who got what he rightly deserved. Haman's promotion maybe was a slap in the face, so this was personal for Mordecai. But this view is contradicted in this passage. Picking it up in verse 3, it says, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So the reason why Mordecai didn't bow down wasn't because there was something innately wrong with bowing, and it wasn't because there was some personal affront. The reason why Mordecai wasn't bowing to Haman was due to his identification as a Jew, a member of God's people. Mordecai's actions, his worldview, his very identity was found in being a member of God's people. He was holy God's. But, you might ask, weren't Jews allowed to bow down? Yes. (laughs) Yes, but there's a critical detail in this passage that would have changed everything. Haman was an Agagite. To the Jewish person reading the story or living through those events, this word Agagite would have set off alarm bells. Their minds would swirl with a strong concoction of feelings and stories shared since childhood, generation after generation. That Haman was an Agagite meant that he was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, And the Amalekites had been enemies since the time of Abraham. Imagine this, the Jewish man at the king's gate facing the generational enemy. From the time of Abraham, the Amalekites had tried to destroy God's people. Over and over and over again, the battles raged on. From Genesis through Numbers, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Judges, 1 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles, the battles continued. Because of the Amalekites' efforts to destroy God's people, God issued a judgment. A judgment in Exodus 17, 14 to 16. No need to turn there, but it says Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar. And called the name of it the Lord is my banner saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation Mordecai could not bow to a nation who God had issued this judgment on God had promised that through his people all the families of the earth would be blessed that there would be a Messiah But the Amalekites were out to destroy God's people and destroy God's purposes for them. That is why they were facing this judgment. So Mordecai, placing his identity in God, of course could not bow to this nation. They hated God and his purposes. He loved God and his purposes. This wasn't a personal issue. This wasn't a race issue. This was a spiritual warfare issue. Mordecai was convinced, he was convicted that he could not show honor to the nation under the judgment of God. It was because of this conviction that Mordecai stood. Day after day, Mordecai stood. This wasn't some flimsy personal vendetta, and it wasn't him shaking his fist at the cultural norm. It was because He knew the Word of God and God's purposes. Do you know the Word of God? When under pressure to bend and to compromise, do you find that your foundation is built on sand? Does your determination come crashing down like a deck of cards? Or is your conviction found in the rock-solid Word of God. This foundation is vital. It's vital as we face our culture today with its increasingly fevered pitch of coercion, rejection, and hate. You know, each of you are probably facing this even now in different measures and ways. I heard a story that was really disappointing to me uh, the other day, and frankly, it's one of the reasons why I hardly watch any sports anymore. Perhaps you've heard of it too. ESPN was reporting on several Christian baseball players on the Tampa Bay Rays. These players had decided not to participate in celebrating pride along with the rest of the team. The ESPN reporter ranted that religious exemptions were garbage in less than nice terms. She continued by saying that these players were trying to be bigoted. And it seems like a silly example, but when we look at our Canadian context, the situation just isn't that abnormal anymore, is it? It seems that every day there is some new training to take, law to obey, or words that say, words to say that are in conflict with what God says. We have to recognize this for what it is. It's a spiritual battle. To have a chance, you and I, must stand on the conviction that is found in the Word of God. So I ask you again, do you know the Word of God? Are you opening up daily? Look, I understand the temptation to take a morning off. I really do. But when the floods are rising and your house is falling, you won't be thinking how thankful you were that you took the morning off, that you had the extra 30 minutes of sleep, you'll be swept away in the floods before you knew what hit you. For the dads here today, you have a serious responsibility. What your kids will be or already are facing makes the stuff we face as kids look like a piece of cake. And it's not the job of the Christian school, the youth pastor, or the weekly Bible study to disciple your kids It's your job dance. Don't be so naive as to think that if you aren't serious about opening the Scripture and your walk with the Lord, that somehow these other good things can make up for you not doing your job. The Bible says this is up to you. You, with the Lord's help, must be leading and guiding your wife and kids to dig into Scripture. So how do we stand in dangerous days? We stand with conviction, conviction grounded in the Word of God. But it is also key to point out the flavor or the specific quality of conviction that Mordecai demonstrates. I find it fascinating that day after day at the King's Gate, as all the other officials bowed down, Mordecai stood and Haman didn't even notice. Isn't that weird? Maybe as Haman approached the gate, if you were to put yourself into his, his position, you would uh, be like many of our modern-day protesters. Maybe you would shout, shout uh, all sorts of obscenities or hold up vulgar signs. But Mordecai didn't do that. Perhaps you would avoid coming to the king's gate altogether, or... Maybe you get up early and get to the gate early, be the keener, get to work. Hopefully that would mean that he wouldn't see. Or if possible, I'd stand in the shadows as to avoid attention and all the questions of the fellow officials. But again, it doesn't seem like Mordecai does any of that. He continued coming to the gate, faithfully obeying God's command, but he doesn't shout insults as Haman enters. He stood on his conviction, but he wasn't disrespectful. I think this is further reinforced by how Esther 2 finished. He finished that chapter off by saving the king, the very king who was evil and his enablers. It again appears he took to heart God's command in Jeremiah 29 to seek the welfare of the city. I love the consistency of Scripture. Mordecai demonstrates a great, lived-out example of Romans 13. When we are told to do something contrary to Scripture, we must stand with conviction. But we don't riot. We don't loot. We don't shake our hand in the air and curse our leaders. We pray for them. We follow God. We stand with conviction. But we do so with respect. So, how do we stand in dangerous days? We stand with respectful conviction. So, here's Mordecai. He's been serving faithfully, with faithful obedience, and standing day after day with respectful conviction. And finally, after days and days of pushing and prodding, the other officials go to HR, they go to Haman. <laughs> Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Filled with fury is such an interesting choice of words for the author. Throughout the Bible, language, the language filled with is actually synonymous with controlled by. So the question for you and I is what are we filled with and controlled by? Are you, like Haman, controlled by your fury? Are you filled with jealousy for the popularity of another? Are you controlled by ambition or greed? Or are you filled with bitterness for your spouse or other family members? You know, as we see in this passage, Haman acts on what he's filled with. The same will always be true for us. And when Haman was filled with anger, he doesn't disdain simply to kill Mordecai. He wants all of the Jews dead. Now, looking at this biblical context that we've looked at, this should be no surprise to us. It's the age-old spiritual battle, and it's just the next scene. So what does Haman do in this scene? He plans, and he schemes, and he orders the destruction of God's people. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. So put yourself into Mordecai's position. You had feared the worst, but when one day passed and then two And three, and no gallows had been set up. Maybe you're a little hopeful. Perhaps you dodged the bullet. Perhaps Haman had forgotten that you hadn't bowed down. But then you hear the decree. Yes, I will die, and so will all of my people. The annihilation of all Jews, young and old, women and children, has been decreed. There's no place to escape to, no country to flee to. You know, I think, as Western Christians, we so often look around at our nation today with a bit of shell shock. I must confess that I often find myself in despair. Pride Month, for me, is a particularly hard time. I work in construction and figured, of all places, that might be one of the last Places to see progressive pressure that we see around us today, but my employer wants me to put pride stickers on my hard hat and wants me to put pride flags up on the construction sites that I manage. Seems like every day new inclusion training is rolled out where I'm encouraged to put my personal pronouns in my email signature. I can see the day coming when these things aren't merely suggestions, but they're conditions of employment. Honestly, it may seem crazy, but it feels like my days are numbered at that company. And I'm hardly the only one. Schools preach hate for God in the name of tolerance. Teachers are forced to sign declarations of support for LGBTQ ideology. Moms and dads are told that they are being abusive when they confirm the sex of their elementary school children. And in some cases, they're even imprisoned. Our government Once the authority protecting freedom of religion, belief, and speech as sacred principles is now policing what we must say and what we must not say and do. You see, the spiritual battle continues to rage on whether you or I see it or not. In Esther, Satan used Haman to destroy God's redemptive plan through the Jews, Today, Satan is working to destroy God's redemptive plan for his people. Some days, weeks, and years may seem smooth that everything is going okay, but the march of troops continues. And when the bullets start whizzing by your head again, it is so easy to despair. Seriously, though, like what happened to our country was it so long ago that I started off the school day with the Lord's prayer? If only I had taken scripture like Ephesians 6:2 more seriously then. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces for evil in the heavenly places. So it should be no surprise to us when institutions, governments, employers, schools, media, and anything else of this world is hostile. In fact, we should be anticipating it. That is the broken and hostile world we live in. It's easy to feel as if evil is triumphing, has triumphed. It feels much like the last verse of Esther, chapter 3. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. You know, it's so interesting that the author wraps up this section of the story with that sentence. The enemies of God's people are drinking and at ease while the people are terrified and confused. If you're one of the Israelites on that day, their extinction had been decreed, what question would be running through your mind? Perhaps you'd be wondering, does does this mean that God loses? But that, that would be wrong. You should be wondering, has God ever lost? Has he ever lost? And even in that moment, as destruction loomed over like a tidal wave, you could recount the stories throughout the scriptures of God's promises kept and his victories won. You could cling to his promise to Abraham in Genesis, where God promised that his people would be made into a great nation through which he would bless all the nations of the world, that there would be a Messiah coming. You could recount the story of Moses and the Amalekites, Joshua and the great city of Jericho, Gideon and the Midianites, David and Goliath, over and over and over again, God's people saved by God's might when humanly there was no victory because God keeps his promises. And so today, when it feels as if the world isn't merely crumbling, but it is attacking, when the devil is prowling around seeking to destroy, we can also recall his promises. And what has God done since the time of Esther? Has he ever shown himself to fail? No. God's people in Canada now even more than the Jews of the time of Persia, can rely on his promises. The promised Messiah has come. The promised Messiah has come. You see, we can stand in dangerous days not because they aren't hard and not because the consequences aren't real. We can stand in dangerous days because we have a sure hope in an almighty God. Not the worldly hope that has no certainty of fulfillment. We have a confident and resolute expectation in Christ's unavoidable, unstoppable, overpowering, and ever-approaching complete and absolute victory. So how do we stand? We stand with resolute hope in an almighty God we stand with resolute hope in an almighty God. As I conclude, I need to provide a warning. Our Savior's inevitable victory in coming judgment should be terrifying to those who aren't in Christ. You may be like Haman in the last verse of our passage. Your life is going well, You are sitting back in your lazy boy with a drink and on top of the world. Inescapable judgment is coming. Or perhaps you're looking around at this terribly broken world and you're despairing. In either case, if you are not a child of God, inescapable judgment is coming. It is final and it is eternal. And the only moment you know you have is the one right now. Do not assume that you will be the one person to squeak by, the one who slips through the gates of hell into heaven. There are no exceptions. I beg you to consider the promises of God and turn to him. He promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to those who do receive him, he will cause them to become children of God. God doesn't promise an easy life. Persecution will be a reality for those of us who are his children. The spiritual battle will continue to rage on. But God is with us, giving us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. Even when the spiritual battle terrifies us, and even if it brings us beyond the point of death, he is promised that he has prepared a place for us to spend eternity in glory with him. Also, might I add, how breathtaking is it that in this cosmic battle, this spiritual war, this grand redemptive plan of God's, that it's something that you and I can take part in. We may seem but obscure voice amongst a chorus of prophets and apostles, missionaries and martyrs, but Jesus promises that God sees what is done, even when done in secret, and will reward us. I'm looking forward to that day when I can stand before the Savior and say, Or hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So how do we stand in dangerous days? We stand with faithful obedience, respectful conviction, and resolute hope. Let's pray. Lord, if we're honest, we're so often so distracted by the world to see you moving. Thank you for the reminder in Esther 3 that you are a good, loving, and victorious God. Thank you that our circumstances do not need to overwhelm us, but that we can go to your word, remind ourselves of your faithfulness, and press on with an unshakable hope. Help us to stand for you with faithful obedience, respectful conviction, and resolute hope.